So we're going to continue on with joyous effort. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's uh, quite amazing, you know, when you really think of the benefit of practicing Dharma, and even, you know, when you get really interested in the studies you're doing and interested in the things you're meditating on, then it's so easy to practice, and there's a lot of um, joyous energy you know, to do the practice. So it shouldn't be something that we're like dragging ourselves along to, I should practice the Dharma, I ought to practice the Dharma. These people are nagging me until I practice. No, it shouldn't be like that, you know? If you have that attitude, then then something's going wrong. Okay, so we want to, to uh, you know, really see the benefit and, and also recognize the change as it occurs uh, in our own lives. You know, having a realistic expectation, you know, you're not going to be Buddha by next Wednesday. Sorry. Well, maybe you could be. Well, probably not. <laughs> but you can still be happy even if you're not Buddha by Wednesday. Yeah, so that's the, the thing. And then also, as you begin to, to really notice what, how the afflictions um, sabotage you and get you stuck and have you digging all sorts of ditches for yourself, then when you notice an affliction, yeah, then you really, it's, it's like this um, treasure hunt. Oh, I found it, you know. Not the treasure, you found the affliction, that's what you were looking for. Like, oh, I found what was driving me crazy. Now I can really work with it. And it becomes something fun to do because you're untangling this big mess in your own mind, Yeah. And, and then when, as you untangle it, it's really hilarious. Yeah. How the mind strings together different things and creates a drama. It's just astounding, you know? And, and you can be interested, like, wow, you know, how did I ever start thinking like that? And laugh at it and, and be delighted when you find those things so that you can, um, release them and let them go. Okay? You believe me? <laughs> yeah, sure. Can't you just make the afflictions go away with a pill? No, sorry. <laughs> Okay, so let's start visual, our visualization of the merit field. And remember that everybody in the merit field, all the, the uh, lineage lamas, have done what we are attempting to do. Yeah, so it's not like we're alone on this journey. There's, you know, 
a whole lineage of century after century of practitioners who have done it and, um, you know, went through everything it takes but realized the goal. And then there's the Buddha and so many other Buddhas in different places in the universe at different times, all trying to help us. So we need to open our mind and let them help us listen to the teachings and really take them to heart. So we want to make sure that we have the proper motivation for listening to teachings. So let's recall that just seeking some pleasure for this life isn't going to cut it. And although seeking nirvana, liberation, is certainly worthwhile, it too has its limitations. But when we really look around us and see how completely interrelated we are with other living beings, and how there's no possible way we could even stay alive or even be born without the kindness of other living beings. Then our mind can relax and approach others as friends, like His Holiness does, and really respect and appreciate other living beings without any strings attached. And to seek to develop our mind, to have the qualities of a Buddha's mind, so we can be of the utmost benefit to them. So at the beginning when I said, you know, we have, when we finish visualize the merit field and we have all the lineage lamas there that they're all trying to help us. You know, some people may get the idea of, uh, oh, does that mean that they're going to appear to me in my meditation? You know, because when we hear help us, we think it means personally only me. 
no, nobody else who's in the room. So in my meditation, you know, they're going to appear and give me uh, teachings. That might happen, uh, wait a few lifetimes. Um, but what it means for us right now is when we're studying Shantideva's text, it's as if Shantideva were giving us a personal teaching and showing the example by his life of how to integrate that teaching and live it. Yeah, so don't have the thing that, uh, you know, receiving the inspiration or blessing from the lineage lamas or they're helping us is some mystical, you know, thing that's going to be preceded by fire fireworks in your meditation or something like that. But it's just when you study, you know, you hear teachings, it's really as if, you know, that teacher is giving you a personal instruction. Now, we may scratch our heads and say, what in the world are they talking about? I don't understand. Okay. Well, that's why we're the students, is because we don't understand. <laughs> yeah. So that's quite normal. Nothing to be uh, alarmed about. So we just keep learning, we keep practicing, and then, you know, we begin to understand better. Okay. So we left off verse 58 last time, right? Okay. Oh, is this a good way to start off the morning? Stupid, ugly, feeble, and everywhere disrespected. First line of the teachings. Doesn't that make you inspired? Okay. Well, it should, because if we are a tough person bloated, bloated by conceit, you know, and are also counted among the self-important ones. Yeah. Tell me, what is more pathetic than this? Okay, here we are, ascendant being, our minds overwhelmed by ignorance, afflictions, and karma. And yet we are so important and think we are so knowledgeable, you know, and that everybody should follow what we say in our advice, you know. So we're just bloated with our own arrogance. Yeah. And yet, it's, it's really pathetic because we're ascending being who doesn't know very much. And we think we're like, you know. <laughs> um, and then the result of that, of course, is... Uh, to be born in future lives as stupid, ugly, feeble, and everywhere disrespected, because that is the way that we have acted or caused other people to to um, to feel. We've disrespected them and put them down, and so on. You know, and it really is pathetic. We've we've talked so much about learning to evaluate ourselves so that we don't have to depend on other people to tell us who we are, you know, and to tell us whether our actions are virtuous or not virtuous, uh, um, whether we're making good decisions or bad decisions. So to, to develop that ability to uh, evaluate ourselves, 
and make make wise decisions. And when we make mistakes, to confess them and uh, repair things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, important to to be like that and not have our nose in the air thinking we are so fantastic. Yeah. No, wait for your question for later. Okay? So, yeah, really, uh, you know, watch how the, the, um, yeah, the self-importance is this really skewed attempt to make us feel good about ourselves when we don't really believe in ourselves. Yeah, and when we're terrified of making mistakes or when we're terrified of other people knowing certain things about us, you know, so we have a whole underground store of uh, stuff that we don't want anybody else to know. But of course, you know, that drags us down, doesn't it? Whereas when we can be transparent about things, admit our mistakes, repair things, then we really learn and, and we, you know, really develop. Okay, so self-confidence is the trick in this whole thing. Yeah, to be self-confident without being self-important. Yeah, and last time I talked about how if you're really self-confident, then you aren't self-important. You don't need to be. Yeah, if you're self-confident, you believe in yourself, you know what you can do well, you also know what you can't do well, you know, and you accept yourself. So you don't try and put on some show for other people. <laughs> and the people who are really self-confident, uh, you know, are the people who are really humble, who don't fear being humble. Yeah. Most of us are terrified of appearing to be humble because when people will walk all over us and take advantage of us and so on and so forth. But the, you know, the real, the real spiritual practitioner has no fear of that. So we in society tend to think, oh, the people who are really powerful, you know, big, like this, and they have a booming voice, and they let everybody know what to do and what not to do. And, you know, they're rich and they're famous, and they argue, you know, every time somebody says something they don't like, and they make sure that their idea prevails, you know. And we think those people are powerful people. Actually, in their minds, it, it really is kind of pathetic because it's really like the, the Wizard of Oz putting on that whole show because you don't really believe in yourself. Yeah. Whereas you look at His Holiness, 
And yeah, I, I don't know if, uh, how many of you watched uh, a couple of nights ago the Sakya tradition um, offered a long life puja to His Holiness. And it was really beautiful. And they gave um, His Holiness one of the Sakya hats. Yeah, which is, you know, quite ornate with brocade and different things. And so this is the middle of this ceremony, very serious ceremony. They're offering all these different things to His Holiness, and He takes them, and, you know, and so on and so forth. So He took the hat, and He tried to put it on. He, he couldn't just slip it on. And so the only way he got it on was to kind of tilt it back a little bit. <laughs> it was really rather comical. And His Holiness smiled and kind of, he, he enjoyed this moment, you know. So it's a totally serious ceremony. And he can smile and take delight in his own ability to put the hat on. <laughs> yeah. And there is no shame, no embarrassment, no, oh, I'm such a horrible person. I did this all wrong in the middle of the long life ceremony. I should have practiced beforehand 10,000 times to make sure that when this moment came, I could put the hat on right, and I didn't do that. No, there was none of that. Yeah, he just enjoyed the moment. I think everybody did. Yeah, did you see that? Oh, that you can still watch the ceremony, but yeah, it was really, you know, just how his holiness is with his, um, with his sense of humor and his ability to giggle. Yeah, um, and that's that for me is. A, t- a teaching, you know, he's showing the kind of mental state, um, you know, a mental state that's at ease. Yeah, a mental state that's relaxed. And, uh, you know, and then you can see the beauty in that. Okay, so 59. Whoever seizes self-confidence in order to conquer the enemy of self-importance, they are the self-confident ones, the victorious heroes. Okay, so it's the self-confidence, that not the self-importance, not the arrogance, that makes one a victorious hero, a, a bodhisattva. And in addition, whoever definitely conquers the spread of this enemy's self-importance completely wins the fruit of a conqueror, fulfilling the wishes of the world. So if we're able to conquer our own set, uh, sense of self-importance, yeah, that is a big step on the path to Buddhahood and to fulfilling the wishes of the world, because a Buddha doesn't, you know, kind of go around helping people, saying, okay, everybody, I'm manifesting from the Dharmakaya to help you, so, uh, you know, be open-minded and listen to what I'm saying, and then after people do that, then he goes, oh, yes, 
I'm such a good teacher. I was able to inspire those sentient beings, you know, like, I'm Shakyamuni Buddha. I'm better than, you know, Amitabha who just sits around in the pure land with all the, the, the very, uh, um, high level uh, practitioners or Vajrayoginis who practitioners are even higher than that, you know, but I'm here with the low ones, but they're so inspired by me. Yeah. Yeah. You think the Buddha has that ego problem? <laughs> you know? No. Okay. So, you know, when, when we've conquered self-importance, then we just do what needs to be done. Like that example that, that, uh, Shantideva gives of the hand pulling the thorn out of the foot. And it is no big deal. Yeah. So you help others as if you're helping yourself. I mean, when you brush your teeth in the morning, do you go, I'm such a good person for helping myself? (laughs) No. Yeah. It's just we do it because it needs to be done and it brings a good result and we don't have to be self-important. Yeah. Okay, 60. If I find myself amidst a crowd of afflictions, I shall endure them in a thousand ways. Like a lion among foxes, I will not be affected by this disturbing host. Okay, so if I find myself amidst a crowd of afflictions. Okay, so... Have you ever had your mind be where one affliction follows the next in such rapid succession that your mind is just spinning out of control and you don't know what to think anymore? Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah, berserky. Okay. So... When we find ourselves in that situation, yeah, I shall endure them in a thousand ways, these afflictions. Now, when we hear the word endure, I don't know about you, but sometimes the word endure indicates to me, grit your teeth and bear it. I'm going to endure this. This affliction is not going to conquer me. No. Okay? That's not the way to do it. Yeah? We just make ourselves crazy. Yeah? But, you know, talk to your affliction. Yeah? Your mind is raging with anger. Yeah? And you ask your mind, okay, what's your feeling and what's your need? Oh, I'm feeling angry because they're doing this and that. And then you say to your mind, no, they're doing this and that is not a, a, a need. What is your need right now? Well, I won't be able to respect me. Okay. Okay, mind. Yeah, you want people to respect you. What good is other people's respect going to do you? 
well, then I'll know that I'm doing okay, that people love me, that I'm accepted, that I belong. And then you you say to my, oh, okay, um, who, whose uh, approval do you trust more, sentient beings' approval or the, or the approval of the wise one, the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas? Yeah? Do you really need the approval and the self, the respect of sentient beings? Or is it more that you need to compare what, what you're doing to the advice that the wise ones have given and to the conduct of the wise ones and to see if we're in line with that? Yeah? So you, you kind of uh, talk with that affliction. Say, look, you don't need to be so angry. Yeah? People respect you. People don't respect you. Comes, comes. Goes, goes. Yeah? That was Lama Yeshi's, one of Lama Yeshi's pith <laughs> instructions. Yeah, these one-line things that stick in your mind. Comes, comes, goes, goes. Yeah. Respect, comes, comes, goes, goes. What's more important? Yeah, that I act ethically. Yeah, that I follow the guidelines of, of the wise ones. You know, that's more important. So, some people approve... Some people don't approve. Oh, this is normal, isn't it? Do you know anybody who only gets good feedback from others? Never, doesn't have anybody who ever criticizes them? Yeah. And people even criticize the Buddha. So of course they're going to criticize us. Many years ago when uh, I was director of the, the nunnery in France, this was the early 80s, it was a long time ago. And, you know, we were mostly, nobody had been ordained very long, and we were just starting things, and it was not structured very much. And I was getting a lot of criticism because at that time I did not realize that the first job, uh, you know, um, what do you call it? First uh, duty of somebody who is in, in a leadership position is to be the object of criticism. Yeah, that, that's the first part of, of your job. Okay, so I didn't realize that at that time. So I was like, wow, I'm working so hard. I'm trying to do so much. And I just get criticized. So uh, Lama Zopa was there and I went to him and I told him that, you know, I'm just trying to help and do what I think best. And then they criticize me. And Rinpoche looked at me and he said, well, sentient beings criticize the Buddha too. That shut me up. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sentient beings criticize the Buddha. They criticize His holiness. You know, needless to say, they are going to criticize me. Yeah. That goes without even thinking. So why am I so surprised when I get criticized? Why am I so hurt by it? This is, you know, part of what happens in our life. And there's nobody who goes their whole life without somebody criticizing them. Yeah? So might as well get used to it. Yeah? You would think that we would get used to it by now. It's happened so much. But every time it happens, we fight it. No, that's not true. Yeah, Stephen's line. But venerable, you don't understand. That's what we say back to whoever criticizes us. You don't understand. Okay. So who is it that doesn't understand? That person or me? Okay, so like a lion amongst foxes, I will not be affected by this disturbing host. Okay, so foxes, you know, people can often be afraid of foxes, um, you know, and certainly small animals are. But uh, if a lion's there, what happens to the foxes? Yeah, they run away. So... You know, like a lion amongst foxes. And the lion doesn't need to say anything to the foxes. The lion just is there. And the foxes look and they're gone. Yeah? So if we hold in our heart our own values, our own standards, yeah, then when the afflictions come, you know, if we are well-trained or after we are well-trained, then the affliction, when the afflictions start to come, you know, we can squash them right away. If when we're not well-trained, when we're, you know, just trying to do our best, then, you know, we have to really stop and say, what's, what's going on in my mind right now? What's the antidote to this? Yeah. yeah, because at that moment, yeah, the the lion is sleeping and the foxes are running all over him. <laughs> so we need to wake the lion up. 61, just as people will guard their eyes when great na- danger and turmoil occurs, uh, likewise, I shall never be swayed by the disturbances within my mind, even at times of great strife or great danger. Okay? So, when you're in a threatening situation or a dangerous situation, people often guard their eyes because, you know, your eyes... Losing eyesight is is something pretty serious. So you guard your eyes and you guard your ears too. It's easy to lose hearing. 
Yeah. And so when things are dangerous, that's what you do. If you think of, you know, what's happening in, in Ukraine, yeah, people guard their eyes, they guard their bodies, they take care, they're observant, yeah, with these kinds of things when there's great danger and turmoil. Okay. So we do that to protect our body, but here he's talking about protecting our mind. So likewise, I will never be swayed by the disturbances within my mind. So my mind may be going berserky, yeah, but I can step back and, you know, I may not be able to stop all the everything right now, but I can step back and go, here we go again, I'm running this video, yeah, my defensive video of how it's not me, it's them. Or my, you know, one of our other, our self-pity video. Yeah. Oh, nobody understands me. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever video it is. Yeah. My misunderstood video. The whole world doesn't understand me. Yeah, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with them? Okay. So we, you know, we have our own little video collection, don't we? Of, of videos that, that we run when different things happen in our lives. Yeah. And we're so habituated to these videos that no sooner do we get any little tiny indication that we could start playing one when, boom, it's already playing and our mind is off and running. Okay? And so to be able to notice that when it happens, you know, and not get mad at ourselves, but just say, here we go again, you know, and I know this, I know this video, I know the plot. Yeah, we know the conclusion. Because we've played the video how many times? And if we really step back, isn't it boring by now? Well, no, because it concerns me, so I can rerun it ad infinitum. But when you really stop and think about it, is it so interesting? Yeah. I find what, what I do, you know, something gets pushed. And then my mind starts rehearsing, ah, what I'm going to say to them, you know. I tell everybody else in teachings, don't think about what to do. Calm your mind first. But what do I do? I'm rerunning what I'm going to say without calming my mind first. Okay. And so I watch that. Yeah. I mean, I can see that's a habit that I have. And I can go off revising, you know, this, this thing I'm going to say to somebody and how I'm going to explain it and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And sometimes, you know, when, when I don't catch it, then it's like, well, this is really important that I rehearse this, you know, because I've got to explain this thing to this person so that they understand that actually I'm right. And they should listen to me. Um, but when I catch it, then I say, okay, 
Here I go again. Stupid. Cut this. Put your mind on something more useful, something that's virtuous. Don't replay this this thing again, you know? And so, you know, now when I can catch it, you know, it's easier, much easier to cut it. Yeah. Before, even I knew what was going on, it was difficult to stop it because I really needed to rehearse to make sure that I explained this properly, you know, so this person really understood. Hmm. Yeah. And now it's like, boring. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have certain mental habits that are boring? (laughs) When you really acknowledge them, what they are. They're interesting when they're happening, you know, because they're all about me. But when you really think about them, they're actually quite boring. Sixty-two, it would be better for me to be burned, to have my head cut off and be killed, rather than ever bowing down to those ever-present afflictions. So likewise, in all situations, I should do nothing other than what is fit. Okay? So this sounds a little bit extreme. Yeah that it would be better to be burned, to have my head cut off and be killed, rather than letting my attachment get its way or my anger, let my anger get its way a little bit. I mean, it's only a little bit of attachment. It's not so bad. And only a little bit angry. And it's actually for the other person's welfare that they need to know this. Yeah, so I need to tell them how wrong they are. Okay, so it sounds very extreme. But Shanti Dev is really making a point that our afflictions, yeah, when You know, we can't always tap them down. Sometimes they overwhelm us. But when we make excuses for our afflictions, yeah, like it's only a little bit of attachment, only a little bit of anger. Yeah, I'm just self-important a little bit. It's not real big, it's not so much of a problem. That when we have that attitude towards our afflictions, uh, then we're actually fertilizing them. Yeah. Because then, you know, they stay in the garden of our mind, and we've accepted them, and so they just keep uh, reproducing. Like napweed. Okay, napweed is actually a very good um, analogy for afflictions. Yeah, because each napweed pod has 900 seeds. I didn't count them, but that's what uh, 
the scientists, the biologists say. So if we ignore even one napweed pod, mm-hmm. and say, well, you know, I've been pulling napweed all morning, trudging through the napweed field, pulling napweed. And here's one more bit of napweed, and ah, it's the last bit, but I've had it. Yeah. And then the napweed stays and it flourishes. So this doesn't mean being tight. Yeah. The remedy isn't being tight and being, okay, I'm going to be suspicious of what's going on in my mind and watch my mind for even the slightest thing. Yeah. If you hold yourself that tightly, you're totally miserable. Yeah. And that tightness becomes an obstacle in itself to really noticing what's happening in the mind. Yeah. So don't go to the extreme of being tight. Mm-hmm. I say that because that's often what we do. Yeah. We happen to be extremists. Yeah. Maybe not terrorist. But we're extremists. So maybe the FBI is looking at us. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be good for the FBI to have some Dharma teachers. Don't you think so? When I went to Singapore in 1987, the Singaporeans said, you know, because they were uh, right before I went there, there was some, I had been in Tibet, and there was some uprising in Tibet, yeah? And they said, don't talk about that. Don't say anything about politics. You know, the Singapore government does not want religion to be involved in politics. And so don't say anything yeah, about that. And I said, oh, and they said, because... I forget what department it is in Singapore, you know, but they will send spies to listen to the Dharma teachings to hear if you are talking about politics or not. And if you talk, say anything about politics, they will kick you out of Singapore. So my response was, I think it would be very good if these spies heard some Dharma. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about politics in Singapore. Yeah. But if I did, you know, I think it would be very good. Yeah. In those days, it was Lee Kuan Yew, you know? And like, yeah, it'd be really cool if he came to teachings. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, the big podcast, yeah, right. Well, yeah, so he could use some more teachings too. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So 63, just like those who yearn for the fruits of play, bodhisattvas are attracted to whatever tasks they may do. They never have enough. It only brings them joy. So, 
we are in the section about the um, the the third part of uh, the third aspect of joyous effort. Okay, so we talked about aspiration, and we talked about steadfastness. This is the third one, joy. Okay, so being happy by practicing the Dharma. So, if you remember when you were a kid, or even when you were a monastic who went for a lake day, (laughs) there's some friends have a a little house by the Hayden Lake, and uh, before COVID, every summer they would invite us to the lake house for the day, you know, and offer lunch. And it was uh, very, a very nice break for all of us. Yeah. And pe- people went swimming and uh, they had one of their sons was a Theravada monk, but he took us out on the speedboat. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was a day of play and it was actually very good for everybody's mind. Yeah. Yeah, and we have one scheduled for July. Yeah, so. Oh, Geshe-la, you'll have to stay longer. It's in July. It's not in June. (laughs) So just as like those who yearn for the fruits of play. So like little kids, you know, when they go to play, they are so happy. Yeah. And they're not thinking, oh, this and that and the other thing. They just go and they play. Okay. So with that same kind of happy feeling, bodhisattvas are attracted to whatever tasks they may do. Yeah. So whatever they do, bodhisattvas do not see it as a chore. Okay. It is not a chore. It is something that can be fun, you know, somewhere where I can contribute and have a good time contributing and other people can benefit from it. Yeah? So they're attracted to whatever tasks they may do. They never have enough. It only brings them joy. So do you remember when you were little and you went out outside to play and you were playing and playing and having such a good time with your friends. And then one of your parents shouted, dinner time, come on in. And you were like, oh, I don't want to come in. I want to stay outside and play. Okay. Or summertime, you went swimming. Yeah. And you were in the pool all day, you know, as much as you can. And then one of them on a, Some adults said, time to go home. I don't want to. So that's how bodhisattvas see doing whatever they're doing, whether they're studying the Dharma, meditating in retreat, vacuuming the floor, um, whatever it is they're doing, they have a happy mind, you know, because they have a virtuous attitude. So they see whatever they're doing as something virtuous. And when you see what you're doing as virtuous, your mind is already rejoicing at your own virtue. 
Yeah. So you can have that inner kind of happiness no matter what you're doing. It's possible. I mean, we have to train our mind. Isn't it strange? We have to train our mind how to be happy. Isn't that interesting? I never thought about it that way, but it really is. Yeah? We have to practice the Dharma so that we can train our mind to be happy instead of always picking faults with others or feeling bad about ourselves or who knows what. Yeah? Okay. So when you hear about bodhisattvas approaching things like that, you get a little bit excited? Okay. 64. Although people work in order to be happy, it is uncertain whether or not they will find it. Happiness. But how can those whose work itself is joy... Okay. So how can those whose work itself is joy find happiness unless they do it? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, although people... Ordinary people work in order to be happy. Yeah. Is it certain that they'll be happy? Yeah. I mean, people go to work thinking some people enjoy their work. Yeah. Many people work simply because they need to to earn a living for their family. And so work is work. And the purpose of work is to get the paycheck. And then with the paycheck, you can have fun. Or with the people who uh, enjoy their work, yeah, then by getting acknowledgement or something, free travel, free, free uh, dinners at expensive restaurants, then, you know, their work becomes fun. Yeah, that doesn't happen to everybody. Okay, but although we do a lot, the point is, although we do a lot to seek happiness, it's uncertain whether we actually get happiness from the things that we do. Yeah, so we might work very hard to get happy happiness, but is the end result happiness or is the end result fatigue or frustration? or whatever, okay? So without the Dharma, our minds fall to fatigue and frustration. Yeah, even with the Dharma, we may get tired. But when we get tired with from doing a lot of Dharma and we need a break, our mind can, can rejoice at what we've been doing and feel content about it. Whether Whereas when we work really hard, to try and get some external happiness, yeah, then if we don't get it, we're really upset. And if we do get it, sometimes we're just too wiped out to really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting in this, in this country, people go on vacation. Um, they, they, they choose a place to go on vacation where they can have fun. But part of the purpose of of vacation is to sleep, yeah, and rest. And sleeping, I don't know, is sleeping fun? 
Yeah, when you're exhausted, you really need to sleep. Yeah, but do you wake up in the morning saying, "Boy, that was really fun." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, we should try waking up that way. Yeah. Oh, I had a, such a good time last night. I don't remember any of it. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like what drunks say <laughs> the next morning. <laughs> okay. So, when we're seeking for worldly happiness, totally uncertain whether we'll get it, even though we work hard to get it. But what, you know, how can those whose work itself is joy? So, when what we are doing is itself something that makes us happy, yeah, then how can those ever, those people find happiness unless they do that? Okay, so, um, you know, they've done all sorts of studies that people feel really good when they're able to reach out and help somebody. Yeah, so if we really have that deep in our heart, then, you know, we've got to reach out and help to feel good because that's how we get our, you know, our sense of fulfillment. Uh Most of us, it's like, you know, what do we enjoy doing? Getting the paycheck or going out and, you know, doing who knows what. Okay. But here for the bodhisattvas, you know, what they're doing, any kind of activity. And there's so many different kinds of virtuous activities. So it's not like you always have to, you know, be studying or you always have to be meditating or you always have to be offering service of some sort. No, we can make our lives, you know, uh, balance our lives between all those different things and at certain times in our life, we need to emphasize one and certain times another, you know. So it doesn't mean you always have to be doing the same thing. But there's so many different ways to create virtue. And when creating virtue makes us feel good, then we want to do it because that's how we feel good at the end of the day. Okay. Whereas working for a worldly pleasure, you can work very hard, but you're not really sure that it's going to come like that. Yeah? Like you're a kid and, you know, you were told, you know, if you're good for so long, then we'll take you to Disneyland so you're really good. And then you go to Disneyland and you have a cold and you can't enjoy it. Or you... Or you go to Disneyland, and in the car ride there, you get in trouble because you do something. Yeah, I'm just talking about ordinary experience, isn't it? Yeah, and you think you're going to have such a good time. Or it's it's um, prom night, yeah, and so you go to Disneyland as part of the the prom or, or part of the senior whatever it is. Okay, and wow, this is going to be fun. And the next morning, you're just, 
Yeah. So you work hard for it, but then it doesn't really bring satisfaction for very long. Okay, verse 65. If I feel that I never have enough of sensual objects, which are like honey smeared on a razor, razor's edge, then why should I ever feel that I have enough merit which ripens in happiness and peace? This analogy of honey on a razor blade, I heard like my first year in the Dharma, and it really made an impact on me, you know, that sense pleasure is like honey on a razor blade. It's so sweet when you taste it. And at the end, you've cut your tongue and it hurts. So you may do something, you know, the afflictions run the show and you may do act according to the afflictions, especially the affliction of attachment and craving. Yeah. And then afterwards, yeah, you feel crummy. Or afterwards, you know, the razor has cut even deeper and you have a lower rebirth. Okay. So, you know, for me, that image of, yeah, I like honey. And you like honey? Yeah. Or chocolate. On a razor blade. And you don't see the razor blade. You only see the honey. Yeah. So I'm going to enjoy that honey. And then you look and there's blood mixed in with the honey. And then there's no honey left and just blood. Yeah. And then you go, why in the world did I do that? Well, the first time you do it, it's like, oh, I didn't know there was a razor blade underneath it. Yeah. First, that's the first time. Then what do we do? Yeah. We do it again. Oh, I didn't realize there was a razor blade underneath it. And then we do it again. Oh, that blazer blade was still there. And then we do it again. Yeah. And it's like, you know, maybe I should not do this. And then we do it again. And again and again. Yeah? Yeah. Isn't that some somebody said that the, the definition of stupidity is it? Insanity. So when you what insanity doing the same thing, thing. Over and over, expecting a different yeah insanity is when you do the same thing. I thought it was stupidity, so I favor stupidity. Um, <laughs> is that you know insanity is when you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result each time. what we do you know that's what we do and I think that's why we have to be able to laugh at ourselves at the same time we nudge ourselves to clean up our act 
Okay. So if I never have enough of the honey smeared on the razor blade, yeah, I could lick that honey for a long time because it tastes so good. Yeah. Then why should I ever feel that I have enough merit which ripens in happiness and peace? So if I'm willing to keep, to get my tongue sliced in order to have that honey, yeah, then why should I ever feel, and I feel like I don't have enough honey, I've got to do it again to get more, and my tongue gets sliced, well, too bad. Um, then why should I ever feel that I have enough merit which ripens in happiness and peace. Yeah. So why should I ever say, okay, well, I've done enough Dharma today. Yeah, I've created merit. And so now uh, I want to sit back and uh, watch. Um, I don't know what the biggest hit is now. You know, some new version of Spider-Man. Or is he out of style? I don't know. What's what? Probably Spider Man. I'm sure somebody will uh, online will email us and let us know if we guessed correctly. You know, but you know, we we say oh, I'm just so exhausted from creating merit. So I, I want to go to a flick and watch Spider Man. Yeah, or watch, you know, some war movie. Yeah, where they're shooting each other up. Yeah, those are amusing. Yeah, you look at what's going on in Ukraine; it's horrifying. But when it's a movie from Hollywood, it's a it's entertainment. Yeah, isn't something screwy about that? Yeah, that when in the in the Aurora Theater, when that guy came in and started shooting during a Batman movie, when they were playing Batman, and Batman was doing all sorts of violent things and jumping around, that was entertainment. As soon as the entertainment became reality, and in Instead of Batman clobbering people, it was this guy in the theater shooting people. Then all of a sudden it wasn't entertainment anymore. So my question was, is why was it entertaining at the beginning when you're watching Batman or Rambo or John Wayne or Spider-Man or whatever you know generation you're from? Why is that amusement? But when it happens in reality, it's horrifying. Yeah. I think, what you know, something's wrong that we enjoy these kind of movies. Okay? But, yeah, what this verse is saying, yeah, is... Um, you know, to, to never feel like we have enough merit and we just need to, like, therefore give permission to our, our attachment to 
do whatever it wants so that we can relax. We need time to relax, you know, and we need to do things that divert our attention to other stuff, and we need to have fun, but we can do it in an appropriate way and in a way that doesn't get our mind embroiled in afflictions. Okay, thus, in order to complete this task, I shall venture into it, just as an elephant tormented by the midday sun plunges into a cool, refreshing lake. Okay, so Shandideva's teaching in India, if you've ever been in India during the monsoon, okay, they say in Delhi, that it's hot, hot enough that you can fry an egg on the on the uh, uh, top of a car. That's how hot the, the metal gets. Okay, it is hot pre-monsoon, and it is humid. Okay, so this image of an elephant who is tormented by the midday sun, you can empathize with that elephant. Yeah, because you've been in the midday sun pre-monsoon yourself, and you know what it's like, you know. And so that elephant takes off and jumps into the lake, and it's just like, oh, this so much relief. This feels so good. I'm out of the heat, okay? So with that much glee, that much enthusiasm, yeah, we shall venture into whatever task we are doing. Yeah, I don't think we need to be overly dramatic and like, yippee, where's the vacuum? I can't, can't wait to get the vacuum cleaner. Hurry, hurry. You know, I don't think we need to go to that extreme. But, you know, everything we do to say, oh, yeah, this is something I can enjoy. Yeah, why not enjoy it? Well, because it's work. Who made it work? What's the definition of work? Work is what I don't like doing. If that's your definition of work, then forget it. You know, you're not going to have a very happy life at all because everything's going to be work. But if you say, you know, work is something that makes me feel good, it's any activity that makes me feel good because I can contribute and, you know, be active, then, yeah, you you define work differently and then it be- can become something you enjoy. Yeah? I think words matter. And, yeah, just like, you know, we do not... At the Abbey, we do not do fundraising. Yeah, we invite generosity. Fundraising and generosity are very different. And you have a completely different mind when you're doing fundraising and then when you're doing generosity. At least I do. Yeah? Yeah? And our IG person agrees. <laughs> okay. So, you know, you change the, the wording to, so that you can really see that this is something that you can enjoy and something you can rejoice about.
Um, okay. And then, uh, then we can be like elephants, you know, running to that lake, going kerplunk. I wonder what, it might be a pretty big splash. <laughs> okay, 67. When my strength declines, I should leave whatever I am doing in order to be able to continue with it later. Having done something well, I should put it aside with the wish to accomplish what will follow. Okay, so we do get tired. Physically, sometimes we get tired. Mentally, we get tired. Okay, so when our physical or mental strength is declining, yeah, instead of pushing, I should do more, I should do more, I am not tired, I'm going to get through this. Uh, Instead of doing that, Shanti Deva says, I should leave whatever I am doing. Take a break. Rest. Yeah, don't dig yourself into a hole. Yeah, and why do we leave whatever we're doing? Yeah, not because we're just exhausted and we can't take it anymore and we're glad that we don't have to do it anymore, but in order to be able to continue with it later because it's something that we enjoy and something that we want to do. And right now we're tired and we need a break. Okay, so we're not running away from anything. We're not giving up on anything, but we are not pushing. Yeah, and it's very important not to push because when we push, then we really, you know, we really dig ourselves into a hole. Yeah, and get ourselves so exhausted that it's hard afterwards. Yeah, so to be able to learn how to be a balanced person. And I know for me, this is one aim of my Dharma practice, is to learn how to be a balanced person. Yeah, it sounds kind of insignificant or silly, but... If I'm not a balanced person, I can't do anything that is of any use. Yeah. So to learn to be balanced, learn to keep a happy mind, learn when I need to take a break. Yeah. When I need to rest my body, when I need to rest my mind, how long to rest, what actually to do when I'm resting. Because sometimes I may do uh, something to rest, but it's actually something that makes me more exhausted. Yeah? Like sometimes you need a mental break and you just, you know, and you just need to rest your mind. Then I think go out outdoors, take a walk in the forest, go work in the forest, look at the stars, look long distances, look at the, look at the flower petals, look at the bugs, talk to the deer. Yeah, then that that's very helpful to relaxing, uh, you know, your mind. But if you, you're relaxing your mind and you say, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna relax and I'm gonna do uh, one of the hardest crossword puzzles that that they've published," is that a way to relax your mind? Yeah, or I'm gonna go and. Um, 
I don't know, balance my checking account, which I haven't done for the last six months, you know, then you're really in big trouble. Okay. But, you know, you choose something to relax, but it's actually something that, that puts more pressure on you. Yeah. So we need to, to learn to pay attention to our own experience of, you know, what, what actually is relaxing and how long. Yeah. And to make sure we relax enough, but to make sure we don't fall into self-indulgence. Okay, so it's this thing also about sleeping, you know, to learn what kind of sleep, how much sleep we need, but not indulge in sleep because it just eats our time away. And at different times in our life, we need different amounts of sleep. And at, you know, in different circumstances, we, we need different amounts of sleep. Yeah. So, you know, to, to learn how to balance ourselves in this way. Okay. And then we can have a mind that is enthusiastic to create virtue. And also to realize that sometimes, yeah, you may not feel, you know, we talked about it, I don't feel like it. Yeah, it's like, there's puja today. I don't feel like going to puja. Yeah, the way these people chant, I wouldn't even call it chanting. <laughs> or whatever, whatever your criticism of the day is, you know. I don't feel like going. And then, I don't know about you, but when I go to a Dharma activity, even when I don't feel like it, I always come out feeling good. Yeah, if every time I didn't feel like it, I didn't go, you wouldn't see me a lot. (laughs) Yeah? But I know now from my own experience that if I go, you know, and I'm not talking about pushing. Yeah, I'm going to go and I'm reading absorption in no external world. (laughs) Okay, Jeffrey's volume three about the Yogacarya tradition. And I hold the book this way and this way and this way. And I'm trying to make some sense of what in the world he's talking about. These three natures and the three non-natures that are all mind only. and no external object, and things exist by their own characteristics, but they don't exist by their own characteristics as the referent of a name or concept. Huh? What? Okay, so I'm relaxing, really. (laughs) You know, that's not what I'm going to do. Yeah. Just find something that's know, a little bit easier on your mind. You can still read Dharma. You can take a walk. Okay. So, 
questions and comments? Okay. First off, I think it would help us here if we changed the term from chore rota to play rota. <laughs> Good idea. Play rota. Okay. And, and kitchen play rota. Yeah, instead of what? Instead of washing dishes, kitchen play. Waterworks. Waterworks. <laughs> oh, waterworks is much better, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's going to the spa after lunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then... Uh, back to the topic of the FBI. A few years ago, when the local sheriff called us that there were some people perhaps coming up here to do something not so virtuous, we were recommended by our friend down the road, the former LA police person, to contact the FBI. So I did, and I was so impressed with how interested and concerned the FBI person was in Spokane. He said, here's my cell phone number. We're going to check all the social media you call me any time of the day of night, day or night. And so we had a long conversation about that. And he was, came across as really, you know, caring about how we were going to do. Mm. And then he called back a few hours later, called us, and he said, you know, I've been thinking some more about this. And I still don't see any activity on social media. And he said, what we need to do, you know, with keeping lights on, doors locked. He said, but, you know... Maybe this is your opportunity to connect with these people. And I just about dropped the phone. <laughs> and I said, beg your pardon? <laughs> he said, yeah, maybe you could connect with these people. Maybe this is your chance. That's an FBI officer. Wow. Did you invite him up? I still have his number. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh-huh. Uh, to go back to the very first verse about stupid, ugly, feeble, mm -hmm. what came to mind is the shooter. I was reading about his background, and mm -hmm. he was really bullied a whole lot in school. And so it just made me think, like, if he had created the causes in the past to be picked on in this life, you know, just look at what happened from there. Like, he wasn't strong enough to deal with it, and he just created more non-virtue. Yeah. So that's how the karma keeps going. Mm -hmm. But I think we should talk about bullying in school as like, you know, leading to these school shootings because it's kind of a common trend and I really haven't heard people mm -hmm. talk about that, how that contributes to the whole situation. Mm -hmm. It pushes people to the edge and yeah. now the difference is they have access to weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I've heard some discussion about, about bullying and those of us who are teachers certainly were aware of it before, you know. And bullying, I mean, I was aware of bullying when I was in grammar school, yeah? Because bullying has existed since beginningless time, yeah? And children especially can be very, very cruel, yeah? And, and you look, uh, why do children bully? Well, because they see older children bullying, and they see adults bullying. Yeah? And, I mean, this is what we see in our politics right now. 
you know, not not policy discussion, but bullying. Yeah, to get more votes so that you can save your parking space. Yeah, yeah all the Congress people get special parking spaces. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So to watch our mind too when we want to bully, when we want to pick on somebody. Hmm? And, you know, since we do prison work, um, we see a lot of this too. The guys write to us about, you know, they themselves have uh, experienced bullying or they've witnessed how what happens in a prison when one person bullies another. Yeah, it really sets everybody off. Anything else? Okay. So let's not end on bullying. Let's end on waterworks <laughs> and spas and... <laughs> And yeah, vacuum. What's vacuuming then? It's aerobics. It's what? Aerobics. Aerobics. Are aerobics fun? No. <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's great bliss. <laughs> okay. Let's dedicate.